Hello, and welcome to History in Reverse, a father-daughter science fiction podcast. Today, we will be reading Siberiad by Lem. Welcome to History in Reverse. Today we will be reading, uh, reviewing another Siberiad by Lem. Uh, my name is Caroline. I'm here today with my father, Richie. Hello. And we are we are back after a, back. a, a bit of a, a bit of a hiatus, just a smidge. How long has it been since we did the last one? I don't know. At least six months. I, I, I meant to check, but I forgot. But uh, do you want to tell us the story? What happened? What, what happened? The dog ate our podcast? The dog ate our, ate our podcast. Oh, because of uh, Sadie? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I was watching um, some friends of mine actually moved overseas and were supposed to bring their dog with them. And there was a bit of a hiccup. She wasn't able to go on the plane. So I was uh, dog sitting um, and it was supposed to be a short period of time. But then with the pandemic happening and travel being shut down, it ended up being like a seven month period of time that I was dog sitting. Uh, so we weren't able to podcast because um, I was I was busy with watching Sadie, but she's a very good girl and she did make it overseas back to her family, which is great. And um, that's all a happy ending. So now we're back and able to okay. podcast again. So. Okay, so this time I, I think we changed our schedule I don't even remember what we were planning, but Siberia was one of the things. And since I'm the one who's pushing Lem all the time, mm-hmm. uh, and this uh, book is just a collection of short stories, a little bit of an easy read. We just read some selections that were interesting. Mm-hmm. So I'll just to give you a little background on the book. The, the book was first published in 1965, and it was actually a sequel. Oh, oh there's a first one? Well, he wrote a, a collection of stories called Fables of Robots, which were just like, almost like children's fables with kings and queens and monsters. Mm-hmm. But the robots, as the character, Siberia was like the follow-up to that. And Siberia actually is a tales of two constructors, Truel and Klapatius. It's just how it's, I think it's pronounced. Is that how you say it? So yep. the first one's Truel. It's for, for our listeners, it's T-R-U-R-L, Truel. Right. And how do you say Klapatius? Klop- well, I have the Polish Polish version of the book here, so I can. Uh, uh, I've been saying Klopatius. That's sure that's incorrect. Well, in, in Polish, it's Klopatius. So it's kind of kind of like Latin, Latin-y sounding. Okay. Klopatius. Anyway, so these two constructors who don't appear to be human. Um, I don't know that it's clear. From right, the, it's not clear. I, I think he kind of implies that they're some kind of artificial beings because they talk about some previous uh, evolutionary step where there was some, uh, what they called uh, pale faces or something. Yeah. Or pale watery beings that, that allegedly, you know, created the spark, you know, the, 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 there's a creation myth in there somewhere about the, I, I, I don't think you read that particular story, but there's one story that about how, how uh, robots were created. You know, there was, there was some, some junk on some planet and, and, and the thing fell and, and, and there was a spark that, that induced some electricity and so forth mm-hmm. and so on. But anyway, so. <laughs> yeah, but it's about these two creators. I don't actually, it's a good question now. I hadn't really thought about it. I think one of the things about the story that's interesting is um, Lem goes into a lot of details with the descriptions of 
the kind of the science fiction ideas and creates a lot of words. And I'm sure with the translation, it's, I can't even imagine what it's like in the original Polish. Uh, he creates a lot of words for descriptive purposes, but you don't really have a good image of what the inventors themselves look like. Uh, so the, the Polish uh, book, actually the, the English book, if you get the physical book, there's some illustrations in it. And there was a, an illustrator who kind of tried to oh, I see. Um, show some of these things. But mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's, so it's not clear. I, I think that they're meant to be. Oh, that's cool. Is there a, so, so you read for, I guess we're on a podcast, we probably should describe what we're doing. Yeah, oh. probably. So yeah, I was, I was showing Caroline uh, some of the pictures in the book. If I remember, I'll include links in the book to, to some illustrations because they're online. They are. I was going to say if they're online, we can we can have people be able to see them because they're really interesting. Did Lem draw those or somebody else drew them? Oh, somebody else drew them. I thought it was Lem, but it's actually there was an illustrator who did these. What I think is interesting about these stories, and we're going to get into describing them um, individually, I think we read five or six of them total. Um, they're kind of like... They're, they're these little, there's kind of short stories where it's like he had like one sci-fi idea and he was like, let me explore this one sci-fi idea. And instead of like wasting time writing like a whole novel about it, he basically just wrote like a short story about each one and had these inventors around to use as characters to do them. Right. So it kind of ends up being kind of like a slice of life story, but in a science fiction setting, you know? It's, well, some of the ideas that he has are completely silly right so mm -hmm. like the very first story which is called how the world was saved right Trull builds a machine and the machine can make anything that starts with letter n mm -hmm. right so he invites his friend Klapatius over to show off his machine he says ask it to do anything it just has to start with n so Klapatius says okay let it make you know, can you make nothing mm -hmm. and it starts destroying the world <laughs> so <laughs> so before they stop it it destroys a whole bunch of stuff. And, you know, and I'm just, that's why when you look out in the outer space, there's so much darkness, there's so much nothingness because this machine destroyed all of this. And now in the story, at the very end, there's like, a, he, he lists things that, that are no longer there. Um, yes. One of the things about the and this these stories all is that Lem's language is so, so interesting. And so, I mean, I think you even made a note of like, you were very impressed by the translation. Because it's so interesting, even in English, it must have been like, that's the translation from the Polish. Right. But he like lists out like the machine that makes anything that starts with N, for example. Most of that story is him listing things that start with N. That it right. Can... And then he makes things up, right? So he, he's just, right. so the story is kind of silly, but it's, you know, kind of a whimsical. So, and the, the second story in that kind of vein is the one about Trull's machine. When he builds a machine, and, you know, the, there's an old tradition of, of people who build artificial machines that when it, you turn it on and you ask it, what is two plus two? Mm -hmm. So he asked this machine, turns it on and it says, what is two plus two? The machine says seven. Mm. <laughs> and you can convince it that it's not. <laughs> and the machine starts arguing with him and, and kind of just storms off. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and becomes like a monster in, in an old, like a fairy tale, right? Because... Isn't that the one that like chases them? It, it, yeah, it chases them, them right? into a village and, and it, chases, it chases and, them to the cave, it traps them for a while. Right, like, right, right. A lot of people die in that story, like the village is destroyed. It's like Yeah, I just uh, listened to a book about the retelling of the Greek mythology. It was very similar kind of in, in, in 
there's like this giant chasing our heroes and trying, but they're running away and hiding from it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I forget how they eventually uh, get rid of it. I think it uh, gets stuck in the mountains somewhere. I know they get stuck in a cave, but that I read that story a long time ago, so I don't I don't remember specifically how they. I mean, I guess they eventually get out of it because there's more stories after. So right. they survive. Um, but I think this is a, something that's sort of kind of jumping ahead a bit is that talking about themes, you know, I love me some themes in literature. One of the things that he plays with in Siberiad is um, clash and or intersection of or the combination of kind of classic science fiction ideas with kind of classic fantasy ideas. So like you were just saying with the Greek. Fairy tales, yeah. Yeah. Look, fairy tales, that's the perfect way to put it, where it's like, you know, they basically were chased by a giant. Right. Exactly. You know, and they, but I smell truth. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like it's so interesting to combine those things because those are not things that are normally combined. And I think part, kind of the silliness of some of the stories, like the machine that can make anything that starts with N, is also in that vein in terms of like because fairy tales are usually like for kids, right? So they're usually kind of sillier. They have like a trick or like an irony in it or some kind of puzzle, which is something we definitely see in the later stories. So the third story, I didn't actually read this one, Trap of Gargadius. What happened? So yeah. What happened? So the, the way the book is structured, the, the first part is a couple of these short stories. And then there's uh, what they call sallies of the two uh, constructors as they travel around the universe and, and do stuff because they're famous. So, so they, in this particular one, they land on a planet where there's like two kingdoms that are at war all the time. Mm-hmm. And so one goes to one kingdom, one goes to the other kingdom to advise them. And they essentially, after the, the you know, neither king wants to have peace. They all like want to basically kill the others or, or, or win over the others. So they say, well, we can make a robotic army much, much more powerful if we connect all the robots together, we network them. Mm-hmm. And so they do that on both ends, sides. And when the armies meet, they also connect and network into this huge, huge brain. And all of a sudden, rather than fighting, they want to just talk about philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the, the gargantual effect, as they called it. It's like, as, as you connect all these brains together, they, they don't want to fight, that they want to you know, contemplate. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that, that's a kind of very typical Lemish kind of idea. Yeah, and that's also, it's a very... Again, it's kind of has that fairy tale quality of there being like a yeah, there's kingdoms and kings fighting. Yeah, and and like the the combination of like is a kingdom, and then here's their robot army. Right. Very strange. And I guess I wonder back in like 1965, because like maybe nowadays we have more things that are along those lines because we have like Star Wars. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all like robot armies and stuff like that. But back in 1965, I don't think there would have been that much stuff along those lines. I don't know for sure because I was born in 1991, so I don't know what they were doing back then. <laughs> well, no, there was science fiction, but he again he was taking this thing a little bit too extreme, where basically all the characters in it are, you know, robots essentially or artificial, what we would call artificial life forms, but life mm-hmm. forms. But they didn't think that they, you know, they thought they were just created. You know, there was just some. There's some myths about some, like I said, you know, pale, pale-faced. Uh, watery creatures or something that that mm-hmm. allegedly made uh, made these things but nobody really believed it <laughs> yeah exactly no <clears throat> kind of but that's that's silly why would you believe that 
So then the next one that we read was Truls Electronic Bard, which I really liked. This is a really interesting one. So basically, Trull makes a machine that writes like really awesome poetry. And it ends up causing a bit of a problem because he writes, he makes this machine. At first it writes like bad poetry, it takes him a really long time to make it. And then it writes really good poetry and then everybody gets upset about it. Well, even before that, so like the, the machine, uh, he makes his machine and of course he wants to show off to his friend. Mm-hmm. So Klapatrish comes over and, and he says, you know, give it a challenge, you know, write, tell it to write a poem, whatever you want. And so he says, okay, write me a poem, you know, about love, but in language of higher mathematics. Right. And, and there is a poem. <laughs> there <laughs> that, are a couple of poems in there and they're so good. Right, so this, that so one, good. Uh, it's like, you know, that begins, you know, come let us haste into a higher plane with diet, thread, fairy fields of Ben, the indices <laughs> we take from one, one to end, common gold in the endless mark of chain. Right. So, so, and you know, Trull says, no, don't be so silly, you know, take, take something else. So he says, okay, why don't you give me a sonnet about the haircut in which every word begins with the letter S, right? And they have it, you know, the guys, mm-hmm. I think it begins with the words, silently Samson slept. Yes. <laughs> right. But what, what I found interesting about that particular poem, that in the Polish version, mm-hmm. the, that poem is different. It's a I different, imagine different, it different, different challenge. And it's uh, somewhat politically incorrect, so I'm not going to read it. <laughs> but I think it's also letter S's. Is the challenge still to have it start with the same letter, or is it? Yeah, yeah, uh huh. Yeah. So I mean, I, I, I am like really amazed at a translator. Mm-hmm. So basically, you had to just come up with this. You know, I, and I wonder, form. I wonder when Lem was writing if he wrote the story first, or if he wrote like some poetry and then wrote a story around it. You know. Good question. Um, I could see it either way. Like, but, what a weird, like a weird random thing to challenge yourself to write a poem about romance, but through, through uh, what, was the, what was it? Through language the, of higher mathematics. Language of higher mathematics. Like, so strange. Yeah, but then, then you know, uh, he asked, Klepatsu's uh, name, some other crazy thing, and he just throws it out because, he said, but the machine just starts spewing this poetry. But then what happens is, uh, right, that, so, so Lem, would, he likes to do that a lot where he kind of satirizes um, like academia or, or, or governments in, in the kind of very, I don't know, subtle. This, this, this was a little bit more obvious, right? Because the idea was that there were all these poem, human poets or, mm-hmm. well, po- real poets who were, it's not clear that but they were human, that heard about this machine and went to challenge it. Mm-hmm. And it would just basically win everything. It's like, you know, it, they would write a poem, you know, start a poem and tell it a poem, and they would return with the poem that would put the eyes to tears, mm-hmm. and they would just all went. <laughs> yes, and everybody got. You know, what I find interesting about it though is that um, the because you kind of are dealing with these like high, like very highly creative science fiction concepts of creating a machine mm-hmm. that can be like a human brain. He like talks about the process of of creating it, um, and then it but the machine stores its poems by printing them out on paper <laughs> and it's like it's one of those things where it's like you know you wouldn't think of any other way to store it and the, of course that's how you would store it's kind of like how in star trek there's just no internet like that dri- like always drives me crazy because they would they would not only have they'd have, have like facebook on their ship you know they'd have ship oh, no, but there's no internet in space you know because you got to go far 
No, but even within the ship, you know, like there would be social media with it. People can't help themselves. Like a meme gen from the from the spaceship. Yeah. Right. There would be memes <laughs> from the spaceship. They're easily, easily. But like the, they just like don't have anything like that. It just because when Star Trek was originally made, it wasn't something that existed. And so this this machine in, in uh, Trill's machine, you know, writes all this wonderful, amazing poetry. And it's, it's this very complicated machine, but needs to store it on paper. It's so weird. <laughs> Well, I mean, he has to publish it, right? So, uh, yeah, I yeah. got. And but he also, a... when he talks about when he builds the machine, he he feeds it all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah. So I've actually I highlighted. Um, I took notes when I when Ooh. I read things this time. I know, weird, right? Uh, I I highlighted a quote, kind of the the passage about making the machine, and about like, where do you start in terms of creating a machine to mimic not only a human brain but a poet's brain and like the process of poetry. And so part of what he wrote was um, the program found in the head of an average poet, after all, was written by the poet's civilization. And that civilization was in turn programmed by the civilization that preceded it, and so on to the very dawn of time, when those bits of information that concerned the poet-to-be were still swirling about in the primordial chaos of the cosmic deep. Right. That's very deep. That's (laughs) like really great. Because it's like, it's such a concise... A way to talk about like poetry as as it is, you know, I'm writing too, I guess, in a broader sense, but poetry especially is so referential to the poet's feelings and understandings and point of view. And that's based on their world's experience and their civilization, which is based on the previous one. And it really does kind of embody all of human history into a single poem. Every poem is that way. And I was just like, wow, okay, okay, Lem, I see you, <laughs> I see you, making some philosophical points here in the middle of this chapter in one sentence, I got it, I got it. I got it. <laughs> so I thought that was really interesting. That's actually a theme that kind of occurs and feel that actually another story in this book, which we didn't read, I read some of it. Well, let me just say that I've read this book first when I was like 12, I think. So I had reread it many times since then, and in Polish and in English. Mm-hmm. So there's um, Lem has this uh, later on as a story about um, one of the constructors trying to find the most advanced civilization in the universe, mm-hmm. and there's some theories how you find it and stuff. So he actually finds it, and mm-hmm. when he lands there, he discovers that the, the the beings in that civilization all they do around is just sit around and pick their noses. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, we're the top civilization. What else is it for us to do? If we do anything, it's just going to be bad or it's going to bring us down from the top. So we'll just yeah. do it. <laughs> oh, but, and, and they don't want to talk to him. So they send him back, send him away so far away that he can't come back. So instead, he builds a simulation where he feeds all the history and civilization that came before to create a simulation of his civilization so that he can discuss with the <laughs> the, beings, the simulated beings in there you know it's, it's you know that kind of thing so but that that theme occurs in his writing and a number of places mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think that and then the other story you were just talking about as well um with the connecting the brains and stuff like that with the concept of connections between people is whether it be like on the individual level because i think there's a strong theme of friendship throughout these stories which we'll talk about after we go over the plots of each and but not just a relationship between individuals in a microcosm but also in the macro kind of sense like when and over aeons right like over time and across space and stuff like that which is 
really, really interesting and makes the stories just fascinating to read. And the other, one of the other quotes I highlighted from uh, this poet one was, uh, he goes on this long paragraph, I won't read the whole thing, about how he built this machine. And he like makes up all these things about like the elect- electrostatic spirit and the protogalactic cloud and all, all these things that he's doing to make this machine, whatever he's doing, all this you know fake science fiction mumbo jumbo. And then he ends the paragraph with, and if anyone questions these figures, let him work it out for himself. <laughs> Which is such like a great like science fiction hand wave of like, and if you if you try to think too hard about it, oh, well, good job, good luck. <laughs> Which I thought was great. What happens to the machine at the end? The poetry machine, um, they end up putting, don't they put it on the planet somewhere? And then somebody else picks it up and it leads to like nuclear war somewhere far away in the galaxy. That's what I, as far as I recall. Oh, yeah. I don't remember what they did. They don't keep the poetry machine. They put it, everyone gets really mad at it. So they're forced. Yeah, to yeah, it. yeah. I mean, everybody gets really mad at it. So they're forced to abandon it and it gets picked up by some other civilization for a while. And then there's like kind of these distant reports that there's like nuclear war or something far away. And they're like, oh, yikes. And then the story ends. So then, do you have anything else on that one, or do you want to move on to the next one? Let's move on to the next one. Um, so the next one is The Mischief of King Balerion. Now, first things first, I don't know if you know this, Balerion is the name of the biggest, most powerful dragon in A Song of Ice and Fire. Oh, really? <laughs> so they Bal- stole from here. <laughs> Balerion, the Black Dread, that Aegon the Conqueror rode to conquer all of Westeros and unite the Seven Kingdoms, a dragon that lived for like, gosh, 150 years or something. It's like very old, like one of the oldest dragons. He was like huge and black and scary and all this stuff. And so then I start reading the story and it's like King Balerion. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this one, this next story is about. Uh, a king that likes to play games. Right. He was, he, is, he was a fun guy. He liked to play games. And who was it? Trull or Clopatius Landic? Trull, I think. Trull. Trull's always the one starting trouble. Clopatius right. is always showing up later and cleaning up the mess. Right. So Trull lands there and he says, I have this great toy for you. you can... Oh, he liked to play hide and seek, right? Yes. So the king, like King Balerion, liked to play different games. He especially liked to play hide and seek. And he put out a challenge that the person that could show him the greatest hiding spot would um, win this like ancient crown. And there's some details in the story that the king would sometimes would hide for days and people couldn't find him and the whole court would be in disarray because they couldn't find the king. <laughs> so Trull shows up with an invention to show the king the greatest hiding spot. Um, so what, do you remember what the invention was? Yeah, so this was some kind of a little thing you put on your head like a, that looked like horns. And if you tapped somebody's head with it, you swapped minds with the mm-hmm. other person. So you could essentially hide in the other person's. So Trull explained it to him and, and, and Galerian put it on his head and bumped Trull. <laughs> and then just, and then Trull slash Galerian just ran away. Right. <laughs> and, and and Trull before knew, knew what was happening, he was sitting there as the king. <laughs> then shenanigans ensued. <laughs> right. So of course he didn't do it just once, he did it many times. So mm-hmm. after a while he had no idea what the hell the the mind of the king was. And actually I, uh Klepatish came right to um 
Yeah, Klopashis was already there. It was already there? Yeah, oh, this is the one where they, because they, they went together. They went together and um, were, they tried to see the king one day, but they couldn't. So they stayed in like an inn and then they went back to the castle and they, and they, they met the king together. So Klopash just watched this happen. So he, he knew what was going on already. He didn't have to come in later to fix it. Right. He already knew. He had to fix it. Right. So he just had to, yeah, when Trull ran out, he went up, ran after him trying to, uh, you know, catch him before anything else happened. And uh, right. he had to actually come up with it, kind of follow where the, the king was. Right. And the king goes from, well, he goes through several bodies, but he eventually ends up in the body of a policeman, like a, or like a, captain of the guard or whatever it is right. and uh locks clopatius up and then clopatius has to trick him to to get out and it's all it's all rather confusing because there's like a lot of body swapping happening right um, but they do eventually get uh all the bodies swapped appropriately um, almost almost some of the people never get returned to their bodies and i'm like these poor guys there's like a the actual original policeman is in like a sailor's body and nobody ever like finds him and fixes it or tells him what happened. Right. Um, and the king ends up, so the king's body ends up being inhabited by the sailor, the good sailor. So they have a better king. He was now. a good, good guy, nice guy. Yeah, he seemed like a nice dude. So we'll put him in the king's body. It's fine. That's That should be okay. <laughs> and then the king's mind, they figured out that they could... Um, transfer minds into inanimate objects so the king's mind was put into a cuckoo clock oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> it was like doomed to forever be a clock <laughs> and then truly completely take the crown and leave because right. they're like we gave him the best hiding spot he's a clock <laughs> nobody will find him <laughs> exactly <laughs> pretty funny oh, let me see if i have any uh, highlights from that story seems slightly s- familiar though like that kind of a silly game I'm, i was trying to think if there's there other stories or myths or something that were along those lines i mean there's lots of kids stories like that so bo- i mean body swap problems are very very common in like basically any serialized television show i think basically every television show was a movie, couple of movies right where, where the- there are movies about it i mean but like literally basically every television show has one the one show that doesn't have a body swap episode, I think, is uh, Supernatural, which somehow went like 15 seasons without having a body swap episode. And, I, and quite a lot of the fandom wanted there to be a body swap episode from what I recall, but there never actually was one. Um, but it's a very, I mean, Star Trek had body swap. Right, right. Constant, like every Star Trek had a body swap. It's a, it's a common problem. Mm. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, when you have, a shape-shifting alien who can look like you you know that's also like a very it's just kind of like a trope right but i think what's interesting is in most body swap stories everyone's ultimately returned to their proper place but in this one they're not <laughs> true and clopatious like like purposefully move they they return themselves they're like very right. concerned about returning themselves but they're not particularly concerned about returning other people so, so well, i have no idea who's where for that matter, because the king was going a little bit bananas there. Yeah, but I mean, it's just like, it's kind of interesting because, I mean, there are main characters, but I don't know that they necessarily have the characteristics of like heroes exactly. They're not exactly like, you know, there for the common good. They're kind of there to like 
mess around and see what they can do. Yeah, mess around. And, you know, they, I mean, they, they get money or they get paid for their services by the, the great constructors uh, who are known throughout the universe. Exactly. Well, the last one that we read was How Trolls Perfection Led to No Good, which is, is this the story that inspired SimCity? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. You want to tell it? Right. So what happens was Trill is traveling for some space and, and he sees this little planet and there's like, it seems to be a, a, a somebody on it. So he lands and it turns out it's a king. And mm-hmm. the king was put in exile because I guess his, his subject did not like him. And so he's alone on this planet, kind of sad. So Trill says, well, you know, I'm a big constructor. I can do lots of stuff. So so you won't be so sad and you want to be a king. I'll make you a little kingdom like in a box. So mm-hmm. he built a little kingdom in a box and he gave it to the king. And he says, here, you can play with it. And you know mm-hmm. the king was known to be cruel, which is why he was in exile. So he comes back home and he has lunch with his friend, Klapatius, and he says, look at the nice thing I did. You know, I gave him a, a, a and Klapatius says, oh my God, how could you do such a horrible thing? says, wow, wow what, what do you mean? What are you talking yeah. about? And then there's a whole big discussion about, says, you are, you are a great constructor. He says, well, yes, I am. And you build perfect things. Yes, yes, I do. And so the little subjects that you build for, for the king, are they going to suffer when, when they're you know, tortured by this king? Uh, and he says, rah, rah, rah. Yeah. Uh, and there's uh-oh. like kind of whole discussion about, you know, what does it mean to suffer? You know, it's, and, and, I guess whether an artificial being could suffer, and right, and, exactly. And what does it mean to be alive? Because this, the kingdom he builds is like very, very detailed. It's miniature, but it's like right. I'm, well, he's, he's a wonderful constructor, right? So yeah, exactly. He's perfect. Like very, it's very detailed. I was sort of asking the question: not only can can artificial intelligence suffer, but can is artificial intelligence alive? Is it not right. the same as us? Right. And uh, but so basically the story has a little beginning part about the king, then like a philosophy essay in the middle, and then the ending. And then they go back saying so that so so Trill says, Oh my god, what have I done? So let's go back. So they go back, and when they get to the planet, the planet is covered with tiny little cities and, and mm-hmm. stuff, and they even see little nuclear explosions here and there, and they bump bump into something in orbit. Think they're thinking it's a moon. Turns out it's the body of the king. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and the so, original box is like a temple or something. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was such an interesting detail that the original box that he had them in, because it had like a glass lid. So the glass lid was still there, but it was like broken and it was like a temple that they had preserved and the little people had spread all over. It was like an asteroid or something that they were on. Like yeah, yeah. Time. What I find really interesting about that story is it's this happens sometimes in stories where the begin the the opening is a foreshadow to the end because the king is found. Truel finds him on this asteroid abandoned because his people rejected him and threw him out. And yeah. then and he's found abandoned and rejected more dead, but abandoned because right. his people rejected him and threw him out. So it's sort of an interesting uh, cycle. And I, I, I like that kind of bookending for the story is really, really nice. Like it makes it a really nice little story. But it's like definitely very, um, very philosophical. So that inspired SimCity, like actually? Yeah, actually, yes. That's so. The original SimCity authors were inspired by, got the idea from this story. 
Wow. The hours of my life I spent playing SimCity and all the related Sim games. Thank you, Lem. That's <laughs> 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 off to you, Lem. So, okay, those are the stories. We kind of ran through their plots so that we could talk about overarching themes and concepts, and we sort of started to touch on a few things. But you, uh, you're, you've re you're rereading these stories now. So what, what do they feel like to you now, having re read them, as opposed to when you were younger reading them? So this time when I was reading them again, that they, they seemed a little bit tedious, like with all this, this, this language that he goes, it seems a little bit overboard. It's mm -hmm. like sometimes you want to say, okay, yeah, I understand you can make up words. Let's get to the point. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he, he makes up words and names like for the princesses and kings. And it's, I think it's on purpose just, just to kind of have a contrast between the, the, like the concepts of old fairy tales and this very science fiction robots and stuff. But I found it a little bit tedious. So like I was reading later on as a story about, well, there's like a story within a story within a story within a story. Mm -hmm because it's it's uh, uh, i think true klapatius goes to some king to make them he made a machine for him to tell stories and the mm -hmm. machine tells stories about another king who had machines made to have dreams uh, mm -hmm. so he could have uh, great dreams and they described dreams and he doesn't like this dream so they have another dream and eventually they have like a recursive dream machine because nobody can stand this king and they just put them as a machine and he goes so deeply into nested dreams that he doesn't know whether he's in or out. <laughs> so, so Lem also wrote Inception in 1965. Right. And yeah. we didn't realize it. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. But uh, so this is like one long story, but it's really like five or six different stories in one. Because, yeah. Um, you know, the one about the most advanced civilization that mm -hmm. kind of harks back a little bit to the, the machine that does poetry where he has to build a simulation to have a conversation with those people. Mm -hmm. I think some of the pacing, so what, you, what you're identifying in terms of it being tedious is a, a pacing issue. I think some of the pacing, I think, was a little bit slow, even for a short story. Um, and particularly with a short story, you have even less space to do anything. I was, I was really happy, actually, though, with the last story, The Trill's Perfection, with the little asteroid civilization, because it really does just kind of stop in the middle and they kind of have a philosophical debate back and forth, but I didn't find that to be too long. I thought that was a good length. Right. It allowed the characters to interact. So then, you know, this is my first time um, reading them. As I said before, it's sort of these sort of slice of life, slice of life science fiction stories, which is something strange. Like, a, like slice of life stories are usually about, you know, they're kind of more traditionally about regular people they're like fictional but in like within set within our universe kind of thing it's kind of interesting to see it i don't know if slice of life is exactly the right word to describe it but that's the best i can think of well there's like an interesting uh, juxtaposition of levels right so like you have a machine that writes poetry right mm -hmm. okay but then you feed it like all the information about cosmic civilization from the very inception of, of the world you know <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you have a king who likes to play hide and seek, and then you have this mind-tracking thing happening, and it becomes like a little detective story. So it's like there's some very low-level things, but some very cosmic things, you know? Yeah, and I like that. I like the combination of those two things. That's sort of reflective of the combination of traditional fairy tales and science fiction. Right. And, you know, those two genres being so very different, fairy tales being very, very old, and science fiction being relatively new in human history. Right. 
fairy tales also tend to have morals, right? And so these stories don't quite have a moral. No! <laughs> like, I mean, don't build a machine that writes poetry so bad <laughs> that people get upset, right? Exactly. Uh, it's like, that's it. I think, and I think that's kind of what I was identifying before was that the characters themselves, so when we talk about them for, okay. for a bit, Trull and Clopatius, they, they don't have, like, they, like, again, they're not heroes. They don't have the, the characteristics that we would imagine for a hero. Right, like that, like in a fairy tale, they're not like necessarily brave. They're not particularly like selfless. Like they're these great inventors, and what are they spending their time doing? You know, building machines that can write poetry. They're not like building machines to end like hunger in the universe or something like that, or cure all diseases. They're kind of just messing around and trying to show off to each other all the time. Well, so they also uh, uh, do jobs for people, right? So yeah, which is like. You know, kind of neither here nor there, I think. But it's it's sort of interesting that it is sort of a fairy tale like feel to it. But I don't think we have heroes in the role that would normally be the hero role in the fairy tale. They're more like the bumbling guys who kind of stumble along. I mean, yeah. these fantastic constructors, right? They can make all this stuff, but they just kind of stumble into things. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so. Well, they're the you know in the Lots of fairy tales have these these have these kinds of characters though. Like you know, there's like the three brothers and the the, the older ones are like bumbling idiots, and this, the the youngest one is the nicest one of them all. But he's not the, the sharpest tool in the box or something. Or not not brightest pixel on the screen. No? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I suppose so. And I think I think another thing that's interesting about Trull and Clopatius is how much they spend. So one of the things that's throughout throughout these stories is that they spend so much time trying to one-up each other yeah. just constantly and they have this great I think it's one of the themes that comes through the story is like the theme of friendship and the theme of we were talking about before connections between people the first example being the one between Trull and Pulpatius and their friendship they're working together they're constantly saving each other to the extent that either of them show any amount of bravery it is in saving one another right um, but mostly their conversations are them trying to show off to one another. Right, right. And which is, it's adorable kind of, but. Yeah, it says, oh, look, I did this wonderful thing. It says, oh my God, how could you have done it? <laughs> right, exactly. Or like, like, look at how great my machine is. And the other one says, it's not so great. Your machine's not so great. <laughs> and, you know, they, like the kind of competition between them uh, is very different, I think, from something you would see in like a fairy tale or a fantasy kind of story that your main characters are like that. And yet they're still very good friends. So I think, I think friendship is definitely a theme throughout the stories. Uh, you know, they're running from danger together. They're saving each other and not only like physical danger, but they're keeping each other like in moral check, like in the last story yeah. where Trull says, I made this wonderful little kingdom for this evil dictator. And Clopatius says, you're crazy. Go back and fix it. That's the bad thing to do. Right. And they're keeping each other, in line in that way as well, which I think is really interesting because we don't get a lot of characterization of them throughout. So I think that's definitely a theme. And um, so I guess maybe that's the latest stories in the book, which we, which I was reading and I kind of got bogged down in is because they kind of disappear. You know, it's like they, Clapatius goes to some kingdom and, and brings a machine that, that, that tells stories. And then you hear the stories the machine tells. Mm-hmm. And so he, and true kind of uh, out of out of the way 
similarly with the the one when they, they look for civilization that is most advanced it's also like Carpaccio's, I think, figures it out, finds the place and talks to the people for five minutes. They send them away. And mm-hmm. then he builds a machine to simulate the entire universe again to that point, And then he can talk to them because there's simulations. I mean, I think at the end of the day, these stories, the, the point is not, the point is not Clopatius and Trull. I think the point is the cool science fiction idea right. and Clopatius and Trull are the, the vessels through which that story is right. You know, as opposed to coming up with a new main, new main characters every single time, having to explain new ones for every single story. Lem just made a pair and was able to utilize them for these stories, which is fine. Not, you know, not every story. Well, he's to- got a couple of other uh, sequences of writing where he has a character that, that gets carried through. Um, and that's fine. That's a perfectly legitimate way to do it. And I think while the stories and the text are not particularly focused on the characterization of these two guys through watching them do different things and through seeing their reactions to things and how how they do stuff, the characterization builds over time through the stories, which is interesting. It's not something you you see a lot. Well, again, like the the other um, sequence of stories here is Pilot Perks. It starts, Mm -hmm. uh, the first couple of stories about him are very kind of lightweight and and kind of, they're not quite as crazy as these, like the regular about, a cadet basically who's training to be a pilot in space and etc cetera, etc cetera. and then it goes perks appears in the very last novel that that lem wrote which was this novel first contact novel called called fiasco mm-hmm. which one day i hope you'll read because there's a whole bunch of stuff in it that you need to explain to me um, oh okay <laughs> no because there's like uh, some novels within novels Anyway, so Does somebody and, uh, sit down and read a book with an old man in a park. Well, there's that too, but there's a guy who tells a story that is completely like I don't know what this has to do with this story. <laughs> um, I mean, but it's Lem. It could mean nothing. There's a very but, solid chance that it doesn't have anything to do with the story. So the perks is one, and then the other one is that he's got another character named Ian Tihe, who's like in between. So he's not quite as crazy as as these two guys. But it's very satirical. So lots of his, his stuff is very satirical. Right, so that satire comes up in this one as well. That's um, kind of his thing. This one didn't have quite as much of it, a little bit like in a, the gargantuan effect, where he pokes fun of governments. And, you know, you have to remember that 1965, he lived in Poland, which was communist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to get stuff published, you had to get past censors. And uh, so he was very clever about that, that he he thinks kind of indirectly kind of no not so much in these stories and Ian Tini's stories but these stories too I wonder if that's one of the reasons why his characters are always like they're kings right because there were that that's different that's a different kind of government you know I wonder if that was one of the driving motivations he couldn't say like you know well part of it was you know fairy tales often have kings and princesses and princes you know Mm -hmm. yeah I mean I wonder if if I wonder, I wonder, you know, it's chicken and the egg kind of thing. Like which one came first? Was it that he wanted? Because, I mean, he does, these stories do kind of comment on different, some different governments. Right. And, you know, whether it's it's right to have a king who's evil and give him a kingdom. You know, whether it's right to kind of subvert who the king is and pretend he, you know, just replace him with someone else and pretend it's fine. Replace him with somebody who's sane or who's, who's right. reasonable as opposed to somebody who just wants to play. Right. And it's like that probably wouldn't have gone over as well if it was not kind of shrouded in the 
fantasy kind of, which is very interesting. I hadn't thought about that. So in terms of themes, talk about friendship, ironing, satire, we've talked a lot already about the intersection of science fiction and fantasy and that kind of juxtaposition, which is definitely prevalent here. Do we have any other themes? I can't think of any other particular themes. Those are all strong themes, those four throughout. Not, I guess so. So the other thing I wanted to talk about, Mm -hmm. um, just based on these stories that we read, is are there any women in these stories? Well, there are princesses here and there, but uh, you haven't read these, but I'll tell you what the title is of some of them. Mm -hmm. There's a whole bunch of stories called Sifra Eroticon, or Tales of Deviation, Superfixations, Aberrations of the Heart. You know, Prince mm-hmm. Felix and Princess Crystal. So the, there were some love stories in some of the stories within stories. So uh, only, only you know, in the later stories, there were some things about princesses. The fourth salio, how trolls build their Femma Fatalatron to save Prince Pantagon from pangs of love. <laughs> <laughs> and I read that and I don't remember now what happened, but it was like he, there's some prince that fell in love with somebody he wasn't supposed to. So they hired Trull to undo it and, and fun ensued. <laughs> so I, the reason I bring this up is because uh, we read Solaris, which was by Lem as well, right? And I love Solaris, one of my favorites. Solaris also had some female characters that were problematic and pretty much to the, to the extent that, which is very common, that the female character was present strictly for like the romantic um, aspect, that she, she didn't have really have any characterization beyond that including in Solaris, that she wasn't a real person. She was an expression of the ocean, yeah. uh, which is a whole other issue <laughs> with Solaris. But um, in these stories, I found, in the stories I read, I found exactly one quote that talked about women. Uh-huh. And uh, it was from the last story where he was, when he was creating the little fake kingdom in the simulated kingdom in the box. Right. Um, and he was uh, definitely making last minute adjustments with his microscopic tools as it ran, and he gave the women of that kingdom beauty and the men sullen silence and surliness, the officials arrogance and servility, the astronomers and enthusiasm for the stars and the children a great capacity for noise. <laughs> so for all women, he gave them beauty. And then he breaks down like all these other people that are assumed to be men. They're all the men this, the officials this, the astronomers this, like all these other people. And I mean, it was 1965. In, in, well, I mean, you, you jump into conclusions just because astronomers don't, doesn't, you know, imply that they weren't beautiful astronomers. Yeah, I think the way it's written, it's pretty. It pretty much implies that the rest of those are men. But I mean, I guess you could read, could read it and interpret it the other way. But the the lack of women throughout is like really astounding to me. How there's just like not even side characters. He, he doesn't have women characters in his stuff. So, like for example, from the Solaris era, there's another book that I really like, um, very hard science fiction called The Invincible, mm-hmm. and it's basically it's uh, a ship full of men lands on a planet to find another ship that was lost on that planet, mm-hmm. right? and it's all like guys. It's this is all like 1960s. Uh, it's all dudes being bros. Yeah, guys, you know, being macho on on, on, on this. So there's that. There's another one from that same era. It's called Eden. And uh, in that one, the characters don't even have names. So he calls them the doctor, the engineer, the captain, you know. Uh And that's how he refers to them throughout the book. Uh So 
So it's sort of interesting because I, I brought this up to you before we podcasted, and I don't I don't know that you entirely agree with me, but the story the stories in Siberia mm-hmm. for their severe lack of female characters ends up having probably an accidental kind of uh, LGBT vibe uh, <laughs> to them. And I don't know, I am sure it was accidental. I don't, I don't think Lem intended it, but as a reader in 2021, there are a handful of instances uh-huh. where Trull and Claplacious do things. And I'm like, um, are you're like really good friends? Like what's happening? So they reference, like, first of all, they're always traveling together. They're saving each other. You know, they're doing the, you know, best friend kind of stuff. Uh, they stay at an inn together. No wives. Um, what? No wives. They have no wives. There's no, well, there's no women around. They can't, right. there's nobody else. They're, um, they're always going and seeing each other. And then there's like other weird interactions. Like in one of the stories, Truel is unconscious, is in a coma. And Clopatius shows up and is like, oh, I can wake him up. Um, hold on, I have the quote. So Clopatius shows up and he's like, oh, I can wake him up from this coma that he's in because you drugged him to be unconscious. Uh, and Clopatius comes upon Trill in the bed and he, and he says, well acquainted with his friend's habits and peculiarities, Clopatius touched the heel of Trill's foot and Trill jumped up instantly wide awake for he was exceedingly ticklish. Mm, uh, yeah, I didn't think of it that way, but, you know, I'll, I'll give you that. When was the last time you tickled somebody's foot? When was the last time I asked? I asked my listeners too. When was the last time you tickled somebody's foot? When was the last time you knew your good friend's ticklish spot? And then there's another line. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm trying to find it. Uh, there's another line from the first, from the or no, from the poet story, um, where Clopatius shows up and. Uh, Truel sees him and is like up in the machine and he runs down to see Clopatius and it says um, uh, laughed Truel racing down the metal stairs and flinging himself delightedly into his colleague's arms. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Okay. I see you being bros. I see you. Well, I mean, uh, can you tell the, if this, they're male or female? What? Uh, how do you know if they're male or female? Truel and Clopatius? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. If they're not human. See, you know. see in Poland. Yeah, gender's a construct anyway. So, like, you know. Right, yeah. It's so <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, they're, they're, they, they're identified in the stories as men and with the he, him, his pronouns. Uh, so they're they're all referred to as men, but yeah, maybe they're not. Maybe they're aliens, and who knows? Well, they're machines, them. right? So uh, yeah. So, but it's it's sort of interesting because it's like once you because think about it, if you had like that passage of you know a character A running down the stairs and fleeing themselves with the arm of character B, if that was a man and a woman, that would be really obviously right. romantic, right? That would be like really obviously something that would catch the reader. But it kind of just like kind of slips by in these stories. But those kind of details are all over the place. Right. So one of the things uh, about this, these stories. So back when I was a poor Polish child, 
-hmm. And I learned how to read. One of my favorite things to read was um, fairy tales. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mother was a teacher and she had access to the school library in her school. So she would take books out and bring them for me. So I got to read like tons and tons of fairy tales from like all around the world. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them have that kind of similar vibe to these stories where there were characters who were sometimes whether two men or two girls or whatever, uh, mm -hmm. often brothers who, who would, you know, do stuff together, you know, and back in the olden days, you know, before pe people had separate rooms, people would sleep in the same bed and, and, and so on. So that's part of the, yeah, I think that, that that's my explanation. For, for oh, that, that very well could be it. I don't, I don't think that Lem was in 1965 trying to have, you know, LGBT representation in his right, yeah. science fiction well, stories. I don't think <laughs> but there, but that reading is definitely present. And you know, that's, that's uh, interesting. The, the, a lot of times what the audience takes away from it is not necessarily what the author intended. Yeah. And that can be good and bad. And, you know, intention well, is one thing, and actual effect is another. So it's just sort of interesting to see that the ability to have that reading from like legitimate passages in the text and not like crazy town pet, like readings of it. Um, like some people interpret some Shakespeare stuff as, as gay, and it's like, not it's just kind of crazy town interpretations of it though some shakespeare stuff is very gay so it just depends on which play you're talking well about. i mean like i said i just um, read a book about the greek mythology mm -hmm. plenty of gayness was just normal it wasn't yeah. no big deal and yeah. heracles had a wife and children a couple of wives some boyfriends you know, yeah <laughs> you know. so it's sort of interesting to see that to see that in this story these stories right and last thing i was thinking we could talk about because we've read some other lem because uh, someone here has chosen some other lem for us to read before. Mm -hmm. So how do these compare? We read for the podcast, we read Solaris. Did we read any other lem? I don't think so. What about, was Return from the Stars lem? Oh yeah, of course. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So we read Solaris and we read Return from the Stars. So how do these compare to those? Those were novels, obviously. So there's right. a difference in length. But do we see patterns or uh, anything interesting um, in comparing them? Well, in Return of the Stars, there's bits about artificial life, especially that, that really creepy scene in the, in the junkyard of robots, right? Ooh, yeah, ooh. That was, that was a very creepy scene. I didn't, I, mean, uh, I liked it, but I didn't like it. It was very creepy. It was very creepy. And, and yeah. again, that's a theme that occurs throughout Lem. Here, there wasn't that much of that kind of stuff, um, except it was all robots, so. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, women characters, as you pointed out, you know, they're, they're, even the woman character in Return from the Stars was just kind of, kind of limp biscuit, basically. Yeah, she was just kind of a vessel through which our main character kind of got like walked around the city, basically. Yeah. So yeah, I guess yeah, there's, a, there's some, a lack of uh, female characters uh, in the stories. I wonder why that is. I wonder, I guess maybe then it just, he didn't think of scientists as, uh, as women and so he was writing about scientists who so just weren't female characters well i mean he was right again he was writing about manly men who went into space and mm -hmm. and and returned from the stars and similarly in uh, solaris manly men going not so much manly men but you know mm -hmm. men going to uh to the space station to I mean, you're right be scientists so that women are kind of went not part of it well sort of interesting because in solaris the the female character was um, 
sort of a monster to the male character and sort of terrorized unintentional right it was just yeah she sort of terrorized him in a lot of ways though she was the most prominent female character i can think of for what i've read of lem the one who returned from the stars just like is kind of just around for a bit but disappears after a while yeah she's just there to be you know the the object of his affection just as you don't really know much about her in in return from the stars he went that main character went to space in that, and that was a ship full of men, right? Yeah. And they came back 200 years in the future, right? So. Wait, but how many years was he, did he actually experience that? I don't remember. Uh, just a couple of years. So it's interesting. But you can definitely see themes about artificial life. Solaris, I mean, Solaris's big thing is about kind of asking what is life and how do you talk to it? Right. So I guess that that similar theme of what what makes something alive comes out in Solaris, and Solaris asks that question and does not answer it. Right. <laughs> well, regarding artificial life, so like in, in Aeon Tihis stories, there are some couple of sh- silly stories where he goes to an insane asylum for robots. Right. Right. So it's it's similar to the robots being broken. So where where robots says. Some robot stops him and says, listen, shh, I'm not a robot. <laughs> it's just glue stuff on me. <laughs> um, yes, and then, and then Futurama riffed off of that and did an yeah. episode. <laughs> well, that was another story that was, that was also in the same cycle, where the, the hero goes, is sent as a spy to spy on this planet of robots. So they dress him up as a robot in disguise, and it turns out everybody there is... is in disguise, so there are no robots there at all, <laughs> and that's for future. I'm not group that up. All right, do we have any other thoughts on Siberia? No, it, it, the only the, the, my last thought is that that I guess after many times I have read it, this kind of hasn't aged as well as some of the other stories. I mean, I thought I mean, as reading it for the first time now, I didn't think it read too old. I think mm-hmm. it it didn't read modern. Exactly, but it didn't read like I didn't know it was in 1965. I didn't. I wouldn't have guessed it was that old. Mm-hmm. I would have guessed it was pre 2000s, but not. I wouldn't have thought it was that old. But maybe I'm getting too impatient in my old age. <laughs> <laughs> I just like the ideas are interesting, and you know what? You kind of see a similar kind of slice of life science fiction thing with um, Ted Chiang. We 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 both love Ted Chiang and his short stories, and it's the same kind of thing. He has like one. Well, he kind of, but he, so he's kind of interesting. He's like the advanced version of this because he has like one science fiction concept, but then his short story is a little bit longer, but mm-hmm. it's a little bit more oomph to them. And he always makes it, or usually makes it into some kind of social commentary that you can pretty much put your finger on. So like, you know, like um, for the podcast, we did some of his stories, right? So we did the one where you have the implant in your eye and it records right. everything. Right. And that also cut back and forth with the, the history of the one of the tribe learning writing. Yes. And, yeah. and like, like that's like a, that's like a one science, there's one science fiction concept in that. He drew that out into like a much broader kind of social commentary and thicker, denser story. Same thing with the story of your life. That was right. one science fiction concept yeah. that he destroyed my brain with. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess okay. I, it's so interesting to see how these things develop over time. And as new science, you need to read the second collection of the stories. 
Yeah. Well, uh, so what are we going to read next? So are we are we are we going to attempt Dune? I think we should do Dune. I think you were suggesting doing it in parts because it's so yes. big. Yes. Yes. So I think that that would make sense because when's the Dune movie coming out? I know it got pushed back again. End of this year, maybe. Eventually, sometime. So I think it's a good time to re to reread that and. Um, I think there's like Dune is divided into three or four books. So let's do book one for next time. Yeah. So I have I have my shiny new Kindle, so I can read anything, in theory, on my shiny new Kindle. I still have some notes from it. I was listening to the audio version. It was really, really good. So, mm-hmm. so I might want to listen to it again. Yeah. So we can do, so then we can do the first book of Dune and man, talk about themes and characterization. I'm going to have a field day. <laughs> <laughs> my notes are going to be like 10 pages long. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening to History in Reverse. I hope you enjoyed our podcast and we'll see you next time. Okay. Bye. Hello and welcome to History in Reverse, a father-daughter science fiction podcast. Today we'll be reading Siberiad by Lem. Da, 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 da. Did, did Zoom pick up the diddle do that my computer did? Yeah. It, it picked up the sound of my computer? Yeah, I, I heard that. So I'm sure it recorded. Okay, so let me, redo it. let me do it again. Take two. <laughs> <laughs>